with confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Welcome to Marching Orders, a This Week Community News Podcast series devoted to Central Ohio military veterans sharing their experiences. I'm Scout Hummel. Let's get right to it. Our guest today is a U.S. Army veteran who served in the Vietnam War in 1966 and 1967. He was part of the Army's 1st Signal Brigade stationed at a Fulham communications facility in Vietnam. In addition to earning his B.A. from Harvard University and M.B.A. from the New York Institute of Technology, and being a graduate of the Army Command and General Staff College. His decorations include the Bronze Star, Legion of Merit, Meritorious Service Medal, Korean War Defense Medal, and Vietnam Campaign Medal. And on his 80th birthday, he doesn't look anywhere close to 80, by the way, he was inducted into the Ohio Department of Veterans Services, Ohio Veterans Hall of Fame. He retired as a lieutenant colonel after 24 years of service and now serves as a board member for Honor Flight Columbus. From Baltimore, Ohio, Joseph Machado, welcome to Marching Orders. Well, good morning, uh, Scott. Good to be here. Joe, I want to start right there at your recent induction into the Hall of Fame. How special was that? Well, uh, it was something that I have uh, worked at for a long time uh, in the sense of nominating people. I recognize uh, what it is. It is not about military service. It's about community service and what you did after you retired honorably from uh, the military service. And uh, there's a process that you go through in being inducted. I really didn't expect to be inducted. I've nominated four people. They have all been uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame. This year, my uh, nominee was uh, inducted posthumously. The induction into the Hall of Fame to me uh, is uh, three things. It's obviously an honor, a great honor, it, but it's also a, uh, an opportunity and an obligation. And what I mean by that is it's an opportunity to uh, understanding what it is and take the, our, our status as a member and go out and look for other worthy uh, veterans in the, in the state of Ohio. It's uh, unique to the state of Ohio. We uh, have nominees who have been inducted from 81 of the 88 counties, uh, in, in, as I understand it, uh, in, in the state. And uh, there are many, many worthy uh, nominees out there. About 200 nominate every year, and they select 20 by law. Uh, uh, the governor approves the final selection, and then you are inducted, and uh, the rest is, is history. But it's an obligation for those of us who have been there in my mind, at least, uh, that to take that advantage that we've been given and the honor that we've been given and use that to look for uh, more worthy, uh, other worthy uh, nominees in the state and, and encourage people like yourself and others to uh, nominate them and, and get them inducted into the Hall of Fame. Well, as you pointed out, too, it's not just for your military service. In your induction, you were recognized also for your commitment to the Boy Scouts, the Red Cross, your church ministry, Honor Flight Columbus, Tell us a little bit about those, especially Honor Flight Columbus and your veterans ministry at your church. Well, having moved around quite a bit, uh, starting in the military, I became involved in the scouts when my uh, own children were of scout age. And uh, as I matured out of that, as I moved to other locations and found other opportunities, I, I don't do that as much anymore. I still support the scouts in any way I can, but uh, I've moved into other areas. Currently in, in, in my 
we moved to Ohio here 10 years ago, and I've become involved in several worthy causes here. One of the most important to me of which is Honor Flight Columbus. Uh, Honor Flight is a program that's about 13 years old. The Honor Flight Columbus Hub is the first of the hub that was uh, uh, established. Now we're in 131 different locations across the country in about 41 states, all independent hubs like, like Columbus. And I probably spend most of my time uh, working uh, with them and uh, uh, flying now uh, Vietnam as well as World War II and Korea War, uh, War veterans on their honor flight. And you also have a veterans ministry at your church. I, I've been passionate about veterans, uh, as you may have picked up. Uh, uh, I, I'm, I, I am uh, uh, kind of the lead of that effort in, in my church. Uh, we haven't really gotten a lot of traction. This year we made more progress than we have in the past uh, 10 years. I moved to Ohio in 10 years. One of the first things I did was was to realize that the church did not have a veterans ministry. We had veterans in the church. The pastors are all not veterans, so they didn't really understand what being a veteran was all about, nor did they understand, and this is very typical in society, uh, by the way, uh, another organization I'm with that uh, uh, is, is on the uh, notes that I gave you is the Veterans Interface Bridge, which is a new nonprofit, and all of this is uh, the, the fundamental uh, uh, need is to educate and make people aware of what's there. Once they understand that their veterans are amongst them, they're in their midst, then they're quite willing to roll up their sleeves and, and do lots of things that help the veterans. So my, my goal in the church is to get more awareness of the, the current veterans we have, but more importantly, the uh, families in the church that have young men and women who are currently deployed and a lot of times the anxiety that the family has when, when a uh, uh, soldier, sailor, airman, uh, men or women are deployed ripples back to the family and the family then acts out or reacts to that uh, anxiety and, and concern they have. And it's very important we understand that, whether it's a child in school, whether it's a, uh, a member of the congregation, or whether it's a member in society as we move around and realize that uh, we need to do what we can to support these veterans. Speaking of families, tell us a little bit about yours. I think you've got a pretty good sized family, don't you? I, I have, uh, I have my share. Uh, we between Sarah and I, uh, we we probably we have a football team between us. Uh, <laughs> um, I have a blended family. Uh, my uh, former spouse passed away uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, Sarah and I have been together. And she has uh, two children. I have three, and and each one of them has the requisite two point five. Uh, children so I have seven grandchildren she has five and uh, I've even got a, a handful of uh, great-grandchildren and you were born and raised in Cambridge Massachusetts you graduated from high school there in 56 then you uh, you stuck around Cambridge and went to some small unknown college there some people might have heard of it Harvard University Yes. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess you were a fairly good high school student, probably not a C average guy, right? Well, I, I did well enough to get me into college with a, with a little bit of a stipend and got me through the first year. The tuition the first year at, at Harvard was $600. And back in those days, uh, in the uh, in the, the mid fifties, uh, 
that was a that was a lot of money to pay. That was a lot of money from a working class family. So, anyway, I I I, I got the scholarship. I went through there. I got an ROTC commission um, with a break in college uh, in between to save up a little more money and. Uh, so I graduated from there, and uh, uh, my, my social class was 1960, even though I graduated a few years later. And I was commissioned in the military in 1964. Yeah, and I know it was the late 50s, but what was it like to walk through the main entrance at one of the most prestigious universities in the nation? Having grown up in the city, um, I had a little bit of knowledge of what it was all about. I was always in awe of it. I still am. Uh, I still have to pinch myself to uh, understand that uh, uh, a, a young man from a working class family uh, could get through there and get accepted there and, and get through there. But Harvard is a, a very diverse uh, culture. Uh, they go out of their way to make sure their class is made up of uh, uh, diversity, uh, representing all the cultures in the country and, and even the world. And as you said, you didn't stop there. You also went on to um, a New York University and then, and then the Army Command and General Staff College. Expand on your education there in New York and at the Army College. Well, that was a target of opportunity. Uh, after being in the military for quite a while, uh, they had a, a, uh, a curriculum that they presented uh, in the communications world uh, uh, that uh, involved the Bell Telephone Company when they were still around uh, as a corporate entity. And uh, uh, they taught a course there which uh, uh, produced communications engineers for the, for the military. And, and I uh, took that course, and, and as part of that uh, uh, experience, when the... Uh, I took the course. The government was realizing that it cost a lot of money to spend, uh, send uh, military officers on temporary duty to New York City and New Jersey. So they brought the course in-house, uh, so to speak. And I actually helped cre create the new uh, curriculum in-house. Wow. And as a result of that, uh, uh, New York University uh, was contacted, and they offered a basically a master's program to anybody building on that that. Uh, communications engineering curriculum. So my MBA is in telecommunications management, engineering and management. And uh, uh, at that time, it was almost a guarantee that uh, if you wanted a job after you, uh, gra after you graduated from the military, after you retired, that you had a, a, a standing job offer with uh, one of the Bell telephone companies. I didn't take advantage of that uh, because I took a different course and uh, uh, I ended up working uh, in, in a, the Washington, D.C. area after I retired for 17 years. And you mentioned uh, you were an ROTC uh, commission. That was in 1964. What were those next couple of years like before you ended up overseas? Well, uh, the Vietnam War, as you remember, may have uh, 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 had been actually brewing since 1961, well before that, actually, uh, you can tie it all the way back to the the uh, World War II and Korean War and some of the things that were done politically after that. Uh, but in, in those early days, it was building up, and uh, there wasn't a great deal of pressure and a great deal of uh, likelihood that I was going to end up there when I got my commission. So I ended up in uh, on the West Coast in uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, with a with a, a unique communications organization, 
that uh, was focused on strategic communications. And actually, while I was there, we uh, we tied up all the uh, military airlift uh, command aircraft on the West Coast one weekend when we were called to send about 60 people from the unit with all their equipment over to Vietnam. And these people went over there and they set up on the hilltops and... Uh, uh, at that point, I still wasn't, uh, I was on my way to Germany, as a matter of fact, uh, with a, another unique uh, assignment that uh, I was fortunate to uh, be given. And about midway through the uh, time when I was getting ready to go, I got a, a, a set of orders sending me to Vietnam. So it was a little bit of a surprise and a little bit of an adjustment. I, I had uh, my youngest child was still uh, on the way, and uh, actually she was born uh, uh, a month before I left for Vietnam. So uh, anyway, I adjusted to that. Uh, the military takes care of itself, and, and they were kind enough to send me back to the East Coast for a short-term assignment to get me from the West Coast and, and allow me to get my family back uh, to the East Coast where they spent the time while I was in Vietnam. So it was an adjustment period, but uh, uh, at that time I was young, uh, stupid, and very patriotic, and the reasons I ended the military uh, was, were still uh, very important and a priority in my mind, and so I was ready to go. Yeah, well, I don't think of a Harvard University person as being stupid. I don't care how young you were. <laughs> you know, and you used that education, or I should say the military used your education as for your in communications. You ended up becoming part of the 1st Signal Brigade, which basically was responsible, as I understand it, for installing, operating, and maintaining a complex tactical and strategic communication system. Take us deeper into what the brigade did and what your role was there. Okay. Uh, the unit I was with uh, was really the, uh, the, the Fulam Communications Facility, uh, a big uh, communications compound that was connected basically to the rest of the world. Uh, uh, literally, we were the gateway for communications in and out of Vietnam. But we also had connections all throughout the country to Thailand, to uh, Clark Air Base in the, in the Philippines, uh, the backbone communications all up and down the country throughout the, the four core areas in, in uh, Vietnam. And uh, that organization was part of another unit called the Regional Communications Group, which really had the responsibility for overseeing and, and uh, managing the entire complex. Our piece of it was to operate the gateway, and part of that gateway was uh, the first application of uh, what uh, became the first operational use of satellite communications in uh, a tactical environment, in a wartime environment. So I had uh, two generations of satellite equipment under my control. One was the original military called SINCOM, and it was really the world's first satellite communications system. And then I had another one called the, uh, uh, in I think it's interim or interim defense communications satellite communication system, which was a, a, uh, the first operational system that uh, the military built. And you were stationed in Fulham, but you actually were in all kinds of locations over there. You were in Saigon, Thailand, the Philippines, and several areas within Vietnam. Was that all part of the first? Um, uh, first signal brigade. Uh, signal brigade. Requirement, yes. Um, the, there weren't that many uh, pieces of equipment around. Uh, the first generation satellite equipment were, uh, um, there were, 
four units that I'm aware of, and all four units were still operational. They were stationed in Thailand, stationed in the Philippines, and I had one there with me in uh, Vietnam. And we literally kept each station going by swapping uh, spare pots or uh, going to the Philippines or going to Thailand where the spare pots were and bringing them back to Vietnam. So part of the uh, the hopping I did around was, was, was to do that. Um, the same thing with the uh, initial defense satellite communication system equipment. There were only two units in Vietnam, but there were only worldwide about uh, 10 or 12 units. I don't remember the exact number, but um, there were only two in, in Vietnam. One was in, in Thailand again. So again, uh, uh, the, when a part broke down, sometimes another location would have it, and you'd have to fetch that. Uh, uh, lots of interesting stories on how we did that. I didn't physically always travel uh, for those locations. I had people that were doing that, but a lot of times to uh, arrange the procedures and and uh, strike the agreements, that's where my, my job was. Yeah, it might seem like a small part of it, but considering the terrain over there, it's so different in all the different areas. You have Vietnam, it's, it has a lot of um, tropical lowlands, lowlands, dense forests in the highlands and numerous hills. Then you get Thailand with high mountains and lowlands. Being in all those different places, how did you prepare for that? Or how did the people you work with prepare for that kind of terrain difference? Well, I, I guess uh, I, I didn't really think about it that way as, as a major terrain issue. Vietnam's a beautiful country. Uh, it, it's recovered uh, significantly from the damage that uh, resulted from the war. Uh, uh, it, it's, 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 a, it's a beautiful country, and the people are very gentle and uh, very social, I guess, for uh, lack of a better term. They are uh, kind people. They they uh, have, after the war, veterans that have gone back, and I'm not one of them, report that they were welcomed back, uh, and uh, the damage that was done by both sides during the war is not a major issue to them. They're just glad to be living in relative peace now, even though they're not a free people. They uh, are recovering and doing well, and uh, uh, prosperity is beginning to uh, show its way there. But the terrain, uh, uh, I think the weather was more of an issue than the terrain. Uh, it rains a lot. <laughs> Uh, they have something called the monsoon there, and uh, uh, if you picture just uh, rain happening all the time, it, it, it doesn't it doesn't come horizontal. It comes down vertical, but it's steady and it soaks everything. Uh, that was probably the biggest uh, concern. The terrain, uh, we managed that, and of course with helicopters and and the ability to uh, get over the terrain, terrain was not really a major issue for me as it would be for somebody in a uh, an infantry or a marine uh, company who's slogging through the muds and the, and the ditches and the water and the rice paddies and and just living in that. Uh, or even the high waters, the high rivers and its numerous leeches that uh, I've heard can uh, yes. really take their toll. And at one point, you were actually at the, um, the Tan Sanut Air Base. That's near Saigon in southern Vietnam. What was your role there and, and for how long? Well, that was the uh, at the in, in the little town called Bequeo, uh, which was on the west edge of the uh, Tonsonut Air Base. That's where the satellite uh, communications equipment was, right next to the 25th Infantry Division base camp. And we were really literally at the wire on uh, Tonsonut Air Base. Uh, at night, uh, we were constantly on the alert. There were lights lighting up the wire and. Uh, 
uh, part of our mission, in addition to having the satellite communications equipment there, and at one point the uh, high-frequency receiver station. Most people don't know about that now, but because we've gone beyond that, but we had a receiver station there, which ended up being moved to Longbin, which then became one of my uh, uh, routes to commute. So uh, we were part of the defense of uh, Tonsonut uh, Air Base, and uh, there were a couple of times when we actually had uh, uh, sappers that had crossed through the wire, uh, not directly at the station, but on either side of us where there was no uh, uh, military installation, and uh, they were able to get through and do some damage. So we were part of the defense of that station. We had the communications equipment there. And one of the things that we had there was a, a, a highly classified piece of equipment operated by the Air Force. And using the satellite communications equipment, we were transmitting some of the battle damage assessment back to the National Military Command Authority in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Marching Orders. I'm Scott Hummel. I'm with Joe Machado. Joe, what was the most difficult part for you while you were over there? Well, any, anybody will tell you the same thing who's been in the military and been away from their family. Being away from family, particularly with a, with a new daughter and uh, two young uh, children, and, uh, a son and another daughter, and, and a wife who is uh, living close to her parents, but, uh, uh, and my parents were still uh, alive at that point, and uh, her parents were still alive, and... and uh, uh, worrying about them as they worried about me and trying to keep them informed and assured that I was as safe as I, I could be and uh, in no imminent danger. Um, that worry uh, was always there. You never never get rid of that. You always think of family and you always look for mail, which on the on-flight side, as you as you are aware, when we do that mail call, uh, those letters that came in were, were very precious, uh, very... Uh, emotional time when we got those to hear the news even though even then it was a, a couple of weeks old or a week old before we got the mail uh, and things might have changed by the time mail from either me to my family or my family to me uh, had had been received and read but that was a very precious time and, and the concern about family was always up there uh, in addition to the the, the soldiers and that I had to, uh, that were, uh, that I commanded and, and were assigned to uh, me to watch over and make sure their welfare was, was taken care of and the problems that they had with their families and emergency leave and uh, uh, anyway, uh, all of the uh, 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 three concerns were my personal concern, my family, my personal concern for the men who worked for me and uh, uh, of course safety is always there and you always have to be Looking over your back in that, what they call now, asymmetric uh, warfare situation where you never knew uh, where a threat was going to be coming from. Were you able to at least find some way to communicate with them other than mail? I mean, I, mean, I know you were in the communications business, so did, did any of that come in handy at all? Were you able to at all? That's a very interesting you? question. Now, remember, I had satellite communications, <laughs> and uh, there, was, there was an appli uh, an operational application for it, but there was a lot of times when it wasn't being used. Uh, and we were able to uh, establish a, a, with the gateway station for us was on the West Coast, Camp Roberts, California. And we had about four to six hours of visibility when the satellites were, these were not synchronous satellites, they were moving. So four to six hours on every path when we had a satellite in view. And uh, because of that, uh, I 
talked to the agency that were technically responsible for it, and, and they gave us permission to uh, do a lot of voice testing on those on that satellite communication system. What better so, way to do voice testing than reach out to the family? I, I Well, not only for me. I took my turn, but we had the opportunity to get lots of people there mm. for a window. And I had people lined up to come in to do that, to be able to... Uh, spend 10 or 15 minutes talking uh, voice to voice with their family way before the internet this was a huge huge benefit so we used it and we tried to share it you just had to make sure the sun was in the right place the wind was less than five miles an hour and uh... (laughs) all of the above when did you get word that your mission was over and that you were heading home and what was that feeling like relief i'm sure but did it seem surreal a little bit it always does when you're in that environment, but uh, the we had a pretty well-defined assignment time. Uh, the, the assignments were 13 months. Don't ask me why 13 instead of 12, but 13 months uh, at that time. And so we generally uh, knew when we were coming back, and you probably heard the stories about all the short-timer calendars they have where you number the days from, uh, usually you start with a with 100 or so, and, and then you get to be a, what they call a two-digit midget uh, when the numbers get down, and uh, you, you check off the time. So you're ready to, to, to leave that place. Uh, uh, for, a, uh, for an infantry or marine uh, uh, soldier, uh, rifleman, uh, that was probably much more important than it was to those of us who lived in relative comfort and, and weren't uh, going out on missions. We knew what our daily assignments were. We still had to watch out. We still had to be careful uh, moving around. Uh, some of the places that I, I've been now were, uh, I look back at them and I know they were they were they were less than secure, but we didn't think about it at the time. So when the when the orders came down, we knew we were about ready to head back to the states of the world, as we called it. That was an important time for us, and uh, uh, there was a transition period we went through. Uh, since we all expected it, it wasn't quite as um, uh, dramatic as it might have been. Uh, we all knew we were going to be heading back at a certain time, and that was one of the benefits of. Uh, Uh, Being in the military at that time, I don't think anybody uh, was there uh, with an unlimited assignment as they were in in World War II or Korea. So as war has evolved, if that (laughs) makes even sense, uh, the the way the U.S. deploys now is for a a finite amount of time. And it's not as wearing as it would be for a World War II or Korean War. soldier and military person who didn't know when they were going to be over. They basically were there for the duration. As we all know, the arrival back in the U.S. for many personnel wasn't all confetti and parades. Some soldiers, sailors, and Marines were treated pretty poorly. Did you have to deal with that or know others who did, or were you aware of it when you were over there, that what was happening as some were coming back? We knew about it. Uh, We heard about it. Uh, It was uh, troubling to us over there, and make no mistake about it, it it does affect the morale of people over there, knowing that you don't have the full support of the the people that you're there for. Um, During the time I was there, uh, 66, 67, uh, the war was heating up, but it hadn't gotten really hot yet. We hadn't... uh, uh, gone through some of the things uh, the, the the newspapers were reporting back uh, some of the uh, events that were going on uh, it, it was a it was a, a kind of a gentler time if you will 
Um, before the Tet Offensive. Before the Tet Offensive. I, I actually was able to, uh, I wasn't able to, I was I was transferred out of there before Tet occurred. So I, I didn't personally experience that. I have friends that did. Uh, and that was probably the beginning of uh, when the uh, country started to protest and and to blame the the veterans who were coming back for the war that our political uh, leaders had got us into. Uh, so I was I was fortunate I didn't have all that to face. Uh, however, after things started getting uh, a lot more divisive in this country, uh, I had to face that. I was still in the military. I was still wearing uniform, and uh, I was—I had the Vietnam uh, campaign ribbons on, and I, I, I felt some of that, but not as much as the young men and women who were coming back and getting off the plane at, at Travis Air Force Base and were being spit at and had things thrown at them and uh, all sorts of uh, uh, shameful and degrading things that were done to them. So what was the uh, adjustment to civilian life like for you? Well, that didn't come uh, until I retired, of course. Uh, when I came back from Vietnam, there's always an adjustment that you uh, go through. Uh, and uh, it, it was more, uh, I was in uniform. I had changed business locations. I was uh, uh, back in uniform, going to a military installation, uh, living in the population. So it wasn't really an adjustment there. When I retired in 1988, at that point, uh, it's a career change, basically, for a career officer, as opposed to a, a young veteran who may have gone in for two or three years and has to come back and find a job. Uh, with the 24 years I was in, I was very fortunate to have uh, gained some skills that I didn't have when I went in, um, in the communications and intelligence side, and that led to an easy transfer. Within uh, a couple of months after I retired, I had a job with a, a company in the Washington area called uh, Booz Allen Hamilton. Uh, some people referred to them as uh, Beltway Bandit. Uh, I, we preferred to call ourselves Parkway Patriots. <laughs> um, and I, I worked there for 16 uh, years doing basically what I was doing in the military uh, for the three-letter agencies in the federal government and the Department of Defense, who I was also working with while I was on active duty. Uh, in, in the last couple of assignments. So it was an easy transition for me, Scott. Uh, uh, I was fortunate to be able to apply the training and the skills that I picked up and put them to good use for another 16 years until I retired uh, completely. Well, you, you might have retired professionally, but you've made yourself a servant to others in a lot of ways, and you point to Christ as the perfect and ultimate example of a servant leader. You said you're committed to, you're committed to following his example how important, Joe, is your faith and how it guides your life? My faith is probably the most important thing in the world to me. Uh, I, um, I try to live it. Uh, I try to show Christ in my behavior in, in everything I do. Uh, uh, to many people that I, I run into in my church where we have uh, uh, children that come in, Sometimes that's the only uh, Jesus that they may see in their lives, if not certainly the, the week that they're there for uh, things like vacation Bible school. But it, it, it's, it's the most important thing to me. Uh, uh, God above country and family uh, is still my creed. And, and uh, I, 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 as I grow older, I realize how much more uh, important that is than I ever did when I was a young man. 
And finally, what advice would you give to others who are maybe they're struggling in a post-military career or just maybe struggling, just adjusting from military service to civilian life? I'd like to use the word paradigm shift. I'm not really sure what that means, but uh, <laughs> it, it seems to make some sense. Um, I'm, I'm, this is not an original idea, but uh, my, the Military Officers Association of America, and I've, I'm a past president of the uh, Central Ohio chapter, um, at the national level, uh, Military Officers Association, or MOA as we uh, refer to it, is uh, ha- their motto is never stop serving. And actually, the Veterans Hall of Fame, we talked about that a little bit. Uh, everybody there had uh, retired or left military service, but everybody there to a person had never stopped serving. And my life is, is about uh, service, uh, from not only from the, the faith perspective, uh, I uh, am compelled to use the blessings that I've received in my life to help uh, others, not only those who have helped me, but because others have helped me along the way. I didn't get to where I am today without, without a lot of people uh, opening doors and helping me and encouraging me and doing all the things that are important to uh, moving forward. So my advice to anybody uh, who uh, is making a transition from the military uh, or any transition whatsoever or just where they are in their lives is service to others is probably the the most important gift we can give to our community, to each other, to society, placing others before self. Uh, and some of these things go back to what I learned when I was a scout uh, uh, that uh, still resonate today and and again as time goes on and I, I uh, reach the point where I'm, I'm mature enough to be able to look somebody in the eye and tell them this uh, service is very important and the people struggling with with uh, transition things of any any sort um, learning how to serve working service into what you're doing will get you a long way to not only opening doors to uh, possibilities that you may not see uh, by uh, maybe sitting back and wondering where you have to, you want to go next, where you should go next, what the next step is for you, by getting involved in the community in a, in a serving way, I think you uh, 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 will find that uh, doors will open to you, that uh, your perspective on who you are, what you're doing, and your worth in society, and what you may want to do uh, with with your life uh, at any point in it is is always worth uh, looking at in terms of how does service fit into that, uh, where you can serve, and uh, the rest will will fall into perspective. Joseph Machado, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your service. Well, thank you, Scott. Thank you for inviting me here today. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Tell us what you think of marching orders, or let us know about a veteran you think should tell us his or her story. Email us at online at thisweeknews.com. That's online at thisweeknews.com, subject line marching orders. Check us out at thisweeknews.com or follow us on one of our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Everything is at This Week News. That is at This Week News. With Joe Machado, I'm Scott Hummel. Thanks for listening.